Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at SuccessionStories.com. Here's to your success. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. How can you position your family's business to successfully transition between generations and begin to grow for the future? Jonathan Goldhill advises closely held and family-owned businesses on this challenge. His passion for advising next-gen entrepreneurs ignited when his family's business, one of the largest manufacturers of men's clothing in the U.S., ceased operations and failed to survive into the fourth generation. Jonathan wrote a book called Disruptive Successor as a guide to driving growth in your family business. Learn about how next-gen leaders can scale up as they take over the leadership and ownership of the company. Enjoy my conversation about how disruptive successors can position your business for next generation success with Jonathan Goldhill. Jonathan, welcome to Succession Stories. I'm so glad you're here today. I had a great conversation with you on your podcast, and I'm so glad to turn the mic around and bring you on here today. Thanks a lot, Lori. Glad to be here today. I want to start with learning about your family's business, Joseph H. Cohn and Sons. Tell us about the company, what they did, and its family business legacy. Gotcha. So my grandfather and his two brothers and their father, Joseph, started a business really around the early 1900s. I have pictures that I've seen of my grandfather and his brothers, age 9, 11, and 13, selling men's suits, three-piece men's suits for $9.99, if you can believe it. Amazing. Um, and hustling on the streets of New York to get those suits sold. Ultimately, they built this into a very large clothing manufacturing business. I think a big inflection point was in World War II when they supplied overcoats to the army and did a massive amount of, of orders. Another inflection point was when they opened up a very large factory in North Philadelphia in in what is an urbanly depressed area. There's actually a huge blog post on, God, I can't even think it's not Reddit, but it's one of those where someone actually did an an enormous research project on the business. I learned almost as much from that as I knew from growing up in it. But my family was very successful in their business. When I went to visit my grandfather, it was always in the heart of New York City. He always lunched at the fanciest place, which was the 21 Club. And he had very fancy offices. And they were basically executive offices with a a showroom. I actually never walked into the factory. 
But I understand that their factory had over 2,000 employees and over a million square feet of floor space in the United States, 500,000 of which was at, I think, Lehigh and Broad in North Philly. So this business was very successful. The research that I came across suggested that they actually sold the business in 1969. So I was 11 years old and they got lifetime employment contracts as chief administrative officer, chief executive officer. And I mean, the three brothers, they worked in those offices until my grandfather was basically where his dementia was so bad that he really couldn't work. And so he died in uh, when he was 93 in 1992. And any opportunity for me to work in that business, like it would have been a great opportunity for me to have been a fourth generation family business leader. But a lot of the sons didn't go into the business. None of the daughters went into the business at that time. And my father, who was a son-in-law, went into the business, but it's not that it wasn't that he was bloodline, but he passed away when he was 35, when I was two years old. So he died in 1960. The business continued to go on and it got, it really just closed down their doors in like the late eighties, 86, I think it was, they closed their doors in Philadelphia because it just, there wasn't a successor to take it to a new place because it really would have meant everything being offshore in terms of manufacturing. I mean, it would have been so disruptive to the way they currently did business. And their business was a relationship business. So, I mean, it worked fine when my great-grandfather passed, but by the time my grandfather and his brothers were passing, there really was no, no one to take the torch at that point. So, but a very successful company. Yeah, sounds like it. And it's so unusual to hear if the acquirer say to the owners, you've got a lifetime employment contract. That's like uh, the Supreme Court of right. <laughs> of manufacturing. It just, uh, that's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, and it's a sad story. I mean, it's a successful story, but then ultimately it is a sad story that the company was just closed at its peak. How big was it in terms of revenue? I think the research that I came up with was that in 1969, they did $30 million in revenue. Wow. So that would probably be $350 million in today's dollars. Yeah, it's impressive. Yeah. So you have an entrepreneurial gene in your family. It was handed <laughs> down and, and you never worked there, as you said, but you got started with entrepreneurial no. ventures pretty much when you, when you finished college, right? Yes, an entrepreneurial and an artistic gene, I might add. My grandfather actually got up every morning, supposedly at 4 a.m., went upstairs to one of his rooms where he painted, and he painted for an hour before he went to work. And actually, he was a prolific painter and had a couple of shows at the Whitney Museum because probably mostly because he was friends with the owner and founder of the Whitney Museum, who also owned the New York Mets at the time, whom he had baseball like season tickets right behind her box. So, you know, it was a quite impressive background. Yeah. So when I got out of college, I like maybe a lot of young people wanted to change the world, Lori. And I was idealistic enough to think that I could change the world and that my whole thing was about fighting for social and economic justice. And that kind of morphed into then, well, well, maybe I could do well while doing good. Mostly it was focused on doing good. So I was involved in a lot of nonprofit, community-oriented, cause-oriented activities before I decided to get into a real entrepreneurial business on my own that was an art 
and clothing business. So in 1986, six years out of college, I ran into someone who was, I thought, a terrific artist and a very entrepreneurial. And he was doing his art on clothing and calling it wearable art. And sometimes he would do it on fabric and canvases and furniture. And and I thought to myself, this might be it. Like, this is me doing clothing business, you know, following the art that my grandfather did, whose my mom was my grandfather's daughter. She also was an artist. So I thought, this is something that's in my blood. And I, I partnered up with this guy and I tried to borrow money or get my family and my grandfather to invest. And I got a letter from his accountant basically saying, you know, your grandfather's really like he's too old and he's too basically senile or to be able to even consider something like this. And, you know, I wish you all the best in your venture and good luck. And well, it's a good thing he didn't invest in that business, Lori. <laughs> uh oh. What happened? Well, so. <laughs> This artist who had basically grown up on the streets of Hollywood, a pretty rough existence, he turned out to be not that honorable of a person. He had kind of hoodwinked me into let's open up a store, which I thought was a great idea, and then let's start going downtown and doing manufacturing. And the store was a good idea because down in the basement, was a huge room to produce these hand-painted wearable art fashions. And he and then an apprentice and then a couple of apprentices, they were painting and doing really good stuff until drugs entered the scene. And uh, specifically, I think it was LSD and, and cocaine and, you know, maybe it was even meth. I don't even know back then, but he kind of went off the rails with his drug habit. And and I didn't see it, and I wasn't that well aware of it, but like he was determined to have me invest as much money as I possibly would invest, and he would ride this out. And we had that going. Then we jumped into, let's see if we can manufacture these things so that we don't have to create, create them one by one. But that didn't translate. Hand-painted stuff and manufactured clothes, like there's a huge gap. It just didn't work. And then, you know, it was a few other things like a big opening that we did on the streets in Venice that attracted hundreds of people and where he painted women that were actually naked and did a boardwalk. We had a guy who was like a pro Frisbee guy. We had a musician that we had signed as an artist and were representing and he played. And I just thought, like, this is a great party, but like, this is like the beginning to the end. So it didn't last past the summer in Venice. I came home and basically shut it down because I knew that it just was going to be a really bad investment. It's so, a cautionary tale about partnership. Is. Yeah. You didn't know that he was going to just have you be the banker no. and that he was going to be happy to spend your money. No. And I didn't also know that he had a wife and two children that were living in Maui that then came over to Venice Beach, California, and started living also in the upstairs loft above the retail store. So it turned into basically a crazy scene because between the the womanizing, the drugs, and the determination to spend whatever money I would put on the table, I thought, this is a really bad partnership. And this is the difference between like a family business, probably and a non-family business, had this been a family business, I would have probably known of his history 
and I didn't really know his history that well. I was just really captivated by his his art. Everyone said, "Oh my God, he does the best stuff!" On you know, he literally took like great masters like like Picasso and Ben Sean and Chagall, and and he interpreted these and he did them on T-shirts and leggings and and uh, leather jackets and silk. And I mean, he just painted everything, including naked women's bodies. And it was <laughs> like, this is just too funny. It was a lot of fun, but it was, it was kind of reckless. Yeah. And probably not the business venture to uh, no. move you forward. It was more like studio 54. <laughs> Very much. And it was at that time, you know, it was, not, it was the eighties when it was quite a yeah. all the Tom Wolf here. Live it was it quite up. a party yeah. scene. Yeah. So tell me about the the bridge from where you were getting started in your entrepreneurial yeah. ventures to how you became an advisor to folks that you've defined as disruptive successors. Yeah. So that lesson taught me that I need to go back to business school and learn how business is really done. And I sought out specifically USC, University of Southern California, that is, because they had one of the top entrepreneur programs in the country and still do. and. From there, I got into the entrepreneur program. I was also really interested in management consulting and family business. So I took courses in, in those areas. And then I went and worked for a consulting firm that was a small business consulting firm in the community, it was a business and economic development firm. And so I was involved in working with literally thousands of businesses over the next 10 years. And we grew that business from three to 30, 40 people, from literally $100,000 that we borrowed from the chamber and nothing in assets. We took it to a 10 million asset, $4 million a year company. And then I decided I needed to go out on my own. And I started advising small and growing businesses, some medium size, some actually pretty large. Um, eventually, after doing this for like 30 years, I looked back and I said, you know, who are my best clients and who are the clients I really liked working with? And they were all family businesses. And then I noticed that there were two types of family business members. There was the older, they were 55 to 70 years old, and they were great to sit around and, and talk with, but they weren't particularly coachable. Um, and then there was this younger generation, and they were 25 to 40, and they were a successor that wanted to take over the next, you know, their, their father, mother, their parents' business. And what I found was they were much more coachable. And when they hired me, uh, the assignment lasted much longer. An assignment with the dad or mom, parents, might have lasted six months. The, the kid, let's call him Junior, wasn't particularly as engaged. When, this, when Junior would hire me, it would last for years. And so that's when I decided that's my niche. You know, I'm basically a scaling up, a growth coach. I've been involved in entrepreneurial operating system, EOS, and, and uh, different communities of coaching, and decided I'd write my own book called Disruptive Successor, a guide to driving growth in your family's business, and target that next generation leader, that millennial 25 to 40-year-old who really wants to, to, to 2 to 10x the business. And it's made sense. It definitely makes sense. And I can relate to it as I was thinking about this show. And so for the fans that remember my trailer and the introductory comments uh, about the show and the inspiration of it was about this baton and what happens when the next generation gets the baton. And a big inspiration for me was working for a third generation leader 
who at the time was in his 60s. So he had watched his grandfather found the company and then his father worked in it. And with each generation, they did something different in the industry. And this was a transportation logistics company. And it started out as a a horse pulling vegetables and fruit. And then it was trucking and warehousing. And then it was the birth of reverse logistics, which is a major part of the 3PL industry. And I was reflecting on that and, again, the inspiration for the show and the conversations that we have because it's about, I think, innovation, growth, and transition. And the concept of a disruptive successor is so important in that because also as we think about the corporate life cycle and we get to the maturity curve that you can either go on the downside and and let it continue to go down or you're going to pull back and, and come back to your entrepreneurial roots, which is difficult, right? We've talked a lot about third generation, how difficult in the U.S. it is to get to the third, and then beyond that is even more challenging. And one of my guests on the show had said that spouting whales get harpooned. And that theme has recurred enough times that I wanted to ask you about it. Your observations of the family dynamics when it comes to the next generation saying, okay, I've got the keys. I want to innovate. I want to do something different. Does the parent generation above give them truly the the freedom to do that? Or do they hold back and say, no, don't screw yeah. it up? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I think it's really, it's a very interesting question. And I can only answer it with anecdotal data. And my anecdotal data is, those parents who have relinquished the power, the control, the authority um, to their children, um, and those children who have the entrepreneurial drive to take it to a next level, those have been clients that have stayed with me in excess of six months. And on average, they're 41 months, so where they were when I last checked. So four or five years. I mean, I'm going on my eighth year with one of my clients right now. And I've had several that were eight-year-long engagements. The ones where the parent won't let go, doesn't, hasn't nurtured the confidence in their child, the, the child doesn't have the confidence, um, and or the parent doesn't believe the child can take over, those assignments have usually come from the parent. And after, you know, they've hired me to coach that person for six months and we've sort of shake, shook hands at the end and said, good luck. Like, I don't think it's, I'm not sure they're really ready. And maybe they'll be ready if they get more mature down the road. Um, and so, you know, maybe I wasn't the right coach at the right time, or maybe they just weren't ready. It's hard to say, but I, I think it's a big issue if you're going to transition a business to the next generation, then you have to treat that next generation, whether it's family or not family, even if you're going to sell the business or pass it along, you have to look at that business from an outside perspective and you have to make yourself um, dispensable uh, to the company. And that is just like the hardest thing for a lot of entrepreneurs to do because an entrepreneur at least these types of entrepreneurs created it not with the idea that they're going to build it to sell. They built it to create maybe a certain amount of freedom in their lives. And they built it around themselves and their abilities and their capabilities. And they maybe don't have a lot of trust in people. And so not trusting people means they can't let go. 
And if they, you know, and this trust, by the way, not just extends to their, um, to their employees, but it extends to their family member. I just don't believe or trust that, you know, junior, I, I hate that term, but for lack of a better word, that he or she is going to be able to make the right decisions. And part of the challenge, Lori, is that it's generally the predecessor's money that the successor is gambling with, right? Most of the equity or assets or business or whatever. I mean, most of that is the predecessor's business and money and assets. And, you know, I mean, how many parents do you know that are willing to say to their kids, okay, you manage my money. Okay, you make decisions. Because a 30-year-old, you know, who has a long runway ahead of them, right, in terms of life, they'll bet the farm uh, much more quickly then a person who's 60 who's looking at retirement is like trying to just make sure that this the seeds or the whatever the seed corn they have at the farm is going to you know fill their plate and take care of their mortgage for the next 15 or 20 years while they're still remaining i mean so their risk tolerances are very different and that's part of what makes it challenging so i think it's risk tolerance but i think ego and control probably plays a, an even bigger part and why businesses don't transition to the next generation or at all. Yeah, or at all. That's a good point. A lot of companies don't sell. Some people are surprised by that. There's lots of reasons why that is. But if it's not transferable, it's not going to have value to another person or entity. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stony Hill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. There's so many things we could unpack about what you just shared, Jonathan. The confidence in the next generation is, and the risk tolerance is a huge part of that. I wonder if it would be a different dynamic, let's say from the founder versus the next gen because if it's not the founder they're at least a little more separated from that initial emotional tie right as the founder sometimes yeah. we can relate you know there's there's certainly more of a control element and letting go dynamic it can be a little more extensive versus the as you get further and further away from that founder emotional tie right so do you think that that has anything to do with it I do. I don't have as much experience in this area because most of my clients are G2, Generation 2 leaders. But those clients that I can look back on that were G2 leaders that had a, a son or sons and daughters in the business, um, if it had already transferred fairly successfully from G1 to G2, if G1 did a really good job of mentoring G2 if it, and empowering G2 and and giving them uh, confidence, then G2 has been mentored in a way that he or she can now mentor the next generation G3. And so I think uh, it's so much about what we learn from our parents that we pass on. Um, nobody wants to think that they're a lot like their mother or father, maybe, because they want to think that they've sort of, I don't know, gone out on their own and, and done it better, or done it differently. But I have to say, I, I mean, I don't think I'm a lot like my mother. And sometimes it really uh, it irritates me that I'm like that. But I, I think that we are. And so I think it, 
just a lot of it just comes down to how well or how were you mentored by uh, by your parent before you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I read your book. And I appreciate you sending me a copy. It was a, a really good read. And some of the concepts are the nuts and bolts of running a good business, how to make right. your business a better business and more enjoyable business to run. And that's a good message for anyone, whether you are the person who just bought the company and you're going to now run it as the disruptive successor from the outside, yep. or if you're family, yep. it's a good idea to have a more healthy business and you, and you provide a lot of insights around how to do that. It strikes me that there's sort of two paths here. One is I'm going to run this business more successfully because I'm mindful of the next generation and or I'm going to run this business more successfully because I might want to sell it one day to a third party. Do you think that family members have an openness to that fork in the road or those options or do they really just pick a path and go? I think they do. I think there's an awareness that that they took over this business that was not really sellable but it was transferable to the, the, the children and that the children being really involved um, have built it into a, a business that has more sellability. Um, it's got better systems. It's got better people, better processes. It's larger um, because if they've been working with me for eight years, they probably 10 X the business by now. Right. And that means, I mean, even if they started with 10 or 15 employees, they've got 150. Um, those are the most, most of the clients I work with, by the way, they come to me by the time when they're between 10 and 50 and they're starting to put these processes into place. And when they leave, they're a couple of hundred or, you know, or more. So I think that, uh, they're looking at how do I build real value? And I think also when they're transferring the equity and it's not just being gifted to them especially when they have to buy it or they have to earn it, they understand what a, the business's value because they've been through a formal, probably valuation process. And so they now know what it's going to take to get it to the next level. Um, some people will just take it and keep it at that level, but then they basically bought you know, a, a job. Yeah, I think you said it really well earlier when you said, if they're going to be a disruptive successor, they have to be either involved in innovation, transition, or growth, you know, or all three. And so, like you talked about the transportation company, I mean, you've got to innovate, innovate either the business model. You certainly have to innovate in technology because that, that didn't even exist before, you know, all the systems that you would put in that area. Um, if you're going to have more families involved in the business, then you're going to need growth because you got more like $100,000 plus a year salaries, you know, to feed and, fa- and families to feed. So you got a two or three X the business just for each family uh, that unit that comes in. And it, the transition process is also part of that process. I don't cover it as much in my book, but like a sidecar book uh, that would go along with my book to talk about how does the equity get transition? You know, is it through purchase? Is it through gifting? Is it through a combination? And, and, you know, how do you evaluate, you know, what it's worth when you transfer it, all those things and all the emotional issues that come up in, uh, for, uh, for either a founder or the, or the predecessor in letting go. So these are all important issues, I think. 
that would be a good sidecar book. <laughs> you could write I'm, that book, Lori. I could write that book with you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the role of governance, the family shareholders, a family board. What are some characteristics of a family board? What are some examples of when it's been used effectively or ineffectively in your experience? Yeah. So with most you know, businesses that are just one and, you know, where there's only first and second generation, the family board is just basically the immediate family members um, or anyone who's involved in the business that's been invited in. It's when it starts to get to G3 and G4 and beyond. And this is, I'm sure, where you have more experience, I think, than I, where you're starting to now bring in outside people who are advisors. And, it, you know, it's one thing to have an advisory board where people are just basically giving their input and maybe they're being paid or compensated for it, but they, they're not an officer of the corporation. Um, it's a different thing when they're a board member and they're an officer of the corporation. And now they've got like an elevated level of fiduciary duties that they need to be accountable and responsible to. Um, and I, I mean, I would say that in putting together, whether it's an advisory board or a board, um, you should look at the complementary skills and talents of the members of the board. Uh, do you have someone who's good in finance? Do you have someone who's good in, in people issues? Do you have someone who's good in operational processes? Do you have someone who's from the industry? Do you have people who have built successful companies that are in other industries? Um, I think you know a mix of those and family members who are going to be a part of it makes a lot of sense. But you have to really look at the diversity of the board. And I don't mean just male, female, or younger, or older. It's, it's really more experience and what they bring. And yeah, absolutely. I recently, about a year ago, went through an interview process for a family advisory board. Like you said, it's not a fiduciary board. It's an advisory board. But that's what they were looking for. They were looking for different experiences, what each of us would bring to the table. It's a second generation construction company. And so being second gen, right, uh, to your point earlier, it has uh, some interesting dynamics to it. But yeah, it is an effective way to try to help get to that next level. And, you know, just rough benchmarks, what I've heard is when, you know, let's say a company gets to around 40 million is when they might want to consider having an advisory board. Is that about what you've seen? I think that makes a lot of sense. I think I've had clients who have been smaller, who have tried it, but they've mostly fizzled out. They just, uh, um, there just isn't enough there, maybe in terms of strategic direction or input or, or finances to cover it. So that, that sounds about right to me. Okay. When I was on your show, the Disruptive Successor podcast, one of the phrases that has stuck with me, I loved it, the boat, building your boat, business owners, advisory team, just the analogy is so good. Who's, who's in your boat with you, right? And you and yeah. I aim to be in that boat together to help business owners be successful and get ready for transition. So I wanted to just address that. Yeah. You work with business owners on this journey to help them grow and scale. And at some point, they're going to consider this proverbial fork in the road of what to do next to transition to family, to sell to a third party. And this is a question I get all the time. So I'm just asking you because I want to compare. What's the time frame look like, do you think? Are people starting to think about that 10 years out, five years out from when they personally are, are ready to make an exit? Do you see different dynamics and different types of companies maybe mm -hmm. from that working with a lot of second gen? So maybe there's more consistency there. 
it seems to me that the standard rule of thumb is three to five years out is a good planning time frame. Um, this is enough time to be able to double the business. So, and we know uh, you and I know both as value builder advisors that a business that is generating 20 million versus 10 million is going to be more than twice as valuable just because of the size. The larger the business is, typically, I think you can, the larger the multiple will, that will go along with it. Um, and I think that a lot of people come to me in the past and they're, you know, they're much further down the road and they wait till it's six months or 18 months and they, you know, it's, it's harder to move things at that point in time. It, it takes time to make change in, in a company. Um, if they come to you with less than six months, then you're just putting, as I think the phrase is, you're putting lipstick on a pig if it's a mess of a company. Um, so I, I think a longer uh, planning cycle is, is needed. But, you know, unfortunately, I don't have the data at my fingertips. More, Laura, you might. But the vast majority of companies don't ever transition or, or sell. They probably just shutter their doors. Um, and that's probably because the vast majority of businesses are small businesses. I mean, supposedly 96% of all businesses, they maybe this data is old, but they were under a million dollars in revenue and they were a mom and pop. And we're talking about the, the grocery store, the dry cleaner, and maybe more of these do sell than I realize. But you know, there's quite a few businesses that go to market to sell and actually don't ever close a deal. So, yeah, that's true the types of businesses you're describing, we call main street businesses, the yeah. under a million, it's definitely more call it owner led, you know, more of a, a job, so to speak. And they've never really intended to transition to anyone else. And then they just typically close. So many of these companies don't have a successor. So that's a natural next step is that it's going to liquidate because mm -hmm. there is no successor. Right. And if they die, then of course it's going to just, close. So those are some of the dynamics for the companies that do want to sell and they put it on the market. And what would be some of the reasons that it doesn't sell? Well, it's kind of a matching problem. Did anyone find it that that would be a fit and that could be part of the gap. But if it's a company that's not generating a lot of cash flow profits, if it's too reliant on its owner, those are also some of the risk natures of it. And is it bankable? You know, there's a lot of reasons why a business wouldn't sell. Is it really yeah transferable and in the eye of the buyer is it going to generate the value that you know warrants the price so many times it doesn't sell also because the seller's expectations are just too high and it's just not realistic and so they decide to keep holding on keep holding on and then of course one of the other tragic things might happen along the way so right yeah, yeah i do advocate on this show and with my clients that when time is on your side to work on your transition planning and for the good reason, as you described, if you can double your business in five years, I mean, it's just, it's worth it to try to invest that time and get your return on equity and return on assets that you're looking for. And, and also just to your point about the data, you mentioned the larger the company, the, the higher the multiples. And a really interesting chart that I have shows an inflection point quite literally at 25 million in revenue. The chart was pretty flat up until that point, starts to increase. And then at 25 million, the multiples just started to really kind of go up exponentially. 
So that point is is definitely backed up. Yeah, yeah. for sure. It's a mindset, right, Lori? It requires a different mindset to build a business that's uh, seller ready or buyer ready, whatever the phrase would be, right? And so it's a mindset to look at your business or to be able to look at your business from the outside and look in and say, what's this business worth? Um, I think it's really important for owners, if they don't have that objectivity, to talk to someone like yourself or me and and get some input or feedback. And so I went into a business just recently uh, to a client of mine, and they're grow they're they're wanting to grow. Um, and I said, like, your place is a mess. You know, it's like a manufacturing uh, technology business. And I said, you need to clean your business up. It's not. You wouldn't even invite a customer or a prospective buyer into your business. So if your business doesn't look good, it's not attractive. I mean, think of the house that sells fastest. It's the one that has great curb appeal. I know when I'm always looking at buying a house, I'm looking first at the pictures. How good are the, how good is the photography? How good does it look from the curb? If it doesn't have good curb appeal and if it's a mess inside, if it's cluttered, uh, you know, it's not going to probably sell. Neither is your house, by the way. So declutter your business, clean it up, make make it look like it's something that is really attractive. I mean, think just makes sense. It's figurative, but it's literal too, right? The scorecards, the performance metrics of the business, getting the metrics looking the way they should directionally, you know, look, we're looking at trends. We're looking at your future projections. All those things matter. And yes, the physical space matters too. Walking through warehouses, you know, when there's a, you know, a well-organized safe environment versus when there's not. I have a client that right now when he shows his warehouse, it is so well-organized, well-labeled. It's impressive. And the the most common comment has been, wow, we just haven't seen this before. And it does make a difference. Yeah. It can make a difference. Yeah. Well, and I'll give you an, an example of how the profitability of a company that's organized like that. It's always been the case that when I go and see a company that's super neat, super organized, you know, charts and uh, metrics posted outside of cubbies or in hallways or, you know, the values of the company, you know, really prominently posted. It's always the case that that company is so much more profitable than its competitive company. So, don't it's think hand that hand. Yeah. cleaning yeah cleaning your your business up is just about like it's a time waster because we don't have time to do that. No, you need to cl- think about cleaning up the business because you the simpler and more elegant and more um, uh, organized your business is, the more sellable it's going to be. Absolutely. So winding down, I know you have lots of great quotes in your book. Yeah. And I bet that you have a favorite one that you could share with us. Yeah. So, yeah, one of my favorite quotes is by uh, Buckminster Fuller. And he was a systems thinker and and an architect. And he was uh, kind of a little bit of wacky guy. Um, He came up with something called the geodesic dome, which he thought was going to be the ultimate living place. But the quote I use is, If you want to teach people a new way of thinking, don't bother trying to teach them. Instead, give them a tool, the use of which will lead to new ways of thinking. And I have found that the 
silver bullet tool in my arsenal has been giving people what I call the vital few, trivial many. It's basically practicing the 80-20 principle. Um, and it literally will teach you how to delegate and or delete or, or downshift on some activities so that you can elevate yourself because you really always should be training your replacement. And so uh, for successors, predecessors, if you're not training your replacement um, and if your replacements aren't training their replacements, your business is going to be limited in how much it can scale. So Absolutely. That's, that's my favorite quote. Well, it's a great quote. It's a great takeaway. And I think a super ending message here for folks, for not only disruptive successors, but anyone working in their business that wants to increase value, whether it's for you know exit planning in the next three to five years or thinking beyond that, because if we can run more profitable in businesses, we will enjoy it more. We'll have a more healthy environment for ourselves and also for our families and, and for our employees. Exactly. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for being on. If people want to get in touch with you, what's a great way for them to do that? Yeah, so the best way is to go to my website, and that's thegoldhillgroup.com. The Gold Hill Group, pretty easy to spell, .com. Um, from there, you can access my book. You can access my podcast, um, and you can learn more about me, and you can contact me and schedule a call with me. Awesome. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on today. It was a joy to talk to you. And I know we'll be continuing the conversation. Thanks, Lori. So listeners, thank you so much for your support. Catch Succession Stories on your favorite podcast player or YouTube and subscribe to the show. If you want to maximize the value of your business and plan for future transition, reach out to me for a complimentary assessment at meetlauriebarkman.com. Join me next time for more insights from transition to transaction. Until then, here's to your success. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com. Dot com.